the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, welcome everybody to Let Us Reason on Faith Talk uh, Radio 1360 KPXQ. I am your host, Al Fadi, and you are joining us uh, uh, on this Saturday morning uh, on yet another episode uh, related to the topic, Is the God of Islam the God of the uh, Bible? Uh, In other words, uh, do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And like I stated many times, uh, and even my guest stated that, it depends really who you're asking. If you're asking a Muslim, the answer should always be yes, simply because that's what the Quran teaches. If you ask a Christian, then we have to be really uh, be uh, fair and careful at the same time. Uh, we It's not about a matter of debate. It's a matter of meeting the person at the level where their understanding is and take it from there by using the Scripture, the Word of God, and praying and trusting the Holy Spirit to do His work to clarify and to enlighten the person. I came from that background. I always believe that Allah is the God of the Bible, but the Holy Spirit and the work of the Word of God and the faithfulness of people around me began to enlighten me and help me see for myself that there are some things here in the Scripture that talks about God that ought to be considered when it comes to looking at God as a, uh, a deity in the Scripture in terms of His character, His nature, and so on and so forth. Very simple things. For instance, um, Nowhere in the Quran, for instance, that God is called the Father. I mean, these are just simple things. Uh, Nowhere in the Quran that God declared that he has a begotten son, a divine son, that he is going to send to the world, to die for the sins of the world. In fact, the Quran denies, actually, uh, these kind of terminologies and uh, this kind of truth uh, about who God is, and even denies the historiosity of the uh, um, uh, the cross itself, and Muslims in general will tell you the Bible is corrupt, even though the Quran itself doesn't really declare it that way, but there has been a progressive understanding and interpretation of things uh, according to human mind uh, among Christ, uh, Muslim theologians in the first four centuries of Islam, leading to the belief that the Scripture, the Bible, has been corrupted by virtue of any contradictions found in it that doesn't match the Quranic doctrines and teachings. And and the list can go on and on and on. Now, uh, last week, I uh, basically closed by talking about something related to the fact that God, in the Scripture, declared to us that um, he is not a man, nor the son of man. He doesn't lie, he doesn't repent or change uh, his word, and the reason why we're talking about that is the fact we showed from the Quran that the God of the Quran is a God that abrogates and changes his own promises and he, his own revelations and replaces them sometimes. But we wanted to anticipate uh, some sort of an objection uh, when I use the word repent, especially in Numbers twenty three nineteen, 
And some Muslims might rightfully so come back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, the scripture, uh, the Bible that you believe in, stated in different places, like in Genesis 6, 6 or Exodus 32, 14, for instance, that God says he repented. Well, what does it mean then that God repented? Did he really change his mind? Not at all. We have to really understand first that God uses words that um, we use a technical word for that. It's called anthropomorphic, which means that God uses a language that is understood by humans. Whenever God says he has an eye or a, uh, the apple of his eye, or if he has a hand, a right hand, or if he has um, any other things related to at least things that we can relate to as uh, humans, we can understand. And this is a language God uses basically to help us um, uh, connect the dots and uh, understand certain incomprehensible truth about God, and therefore um, we will be able to at least resonate with what being said. If God is saying things that are above our head, which God can, of course, because he said his ways are above ours and his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways and so on and so forth. Therefore, um, if, if God will speak to us in a language we cannot understand, and let me relate that now to the Quran. The Quran was revealed in Arabic, by the way, and only a handful of people in that time would have understood it. Until this day, out of the 1.5, 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, only about 300 million may understand it in Arabic because they're the only one who speak Arabic. And not all of them, by the way, will understand the language of the Quran. So uh, put this in perspective to see the difference here. And by the way, even the Quran uses languages like this about God. So I'm not trying to make it sound like the Bible is exclusive in here, but we need to respond to this supposed objection when God uses a term like he repented. So one of it is to use a language that we would understand. The second thing also, it really uh, reveals to us the nature of God in terms of his um, uh, his salvation, um, basically, work. God's patient, by the way, means salvation. In fact, that's what the Scripture says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that his patient is salvation. What I mean by that, when God really um, makes an action uh, that will give the human being a chance to be saved, then that actually speaks volumes about who God is and in terms of his love for the sinners to give him a chance, not a God that wants just to punish. For instance, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says this, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Notice, this is God speaking to the wicked people, the sinners, like all of us, by the way, and he's telling us, I want you to repent. I want you to turn from your ways and come back to me so that you will live. You will have eternal salvation. Same thing. We read of an incident, for instance. Uh, uh, we, we read uh, of a passage in Jeremiah 18, uh, verses 7 to 10, where God is saying, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I thought to bring upon it. You see, God is saying, I will relent. Why? If the nation, if the nation turned basically away from this evil. 
And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I would benefit it. I mean, you see, God is a God of patience. God is a God of salvation. Therefore, we ought to really understand uh, what's happening from God's perspective, and especially from the biblical perspective. The Bible is a book of redemption. And the plan of God in the Bible is a plan of redemption. And the sending of Christ to die on the cross is a plan and a mission of redemption. And our evangelism is an evangelism to redeem people, souls, back to God. So I would understand then why would God feel that he doesn't want to be hasty in carrying out a punishment and an attack and a judgment if he, he is the creator, wants to give his own creatures a chance to repent. So I'll read in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. Notice, God sees all things. He saw their works. What was the work? They repented. They turned from their even way, uh, evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So who saved them? God. Not their work that saved them. Their work, in this case, it's reference just to them acknowledging that they are evil sinners in need of obedience to God. And they trusted by faith that God is going to save them, and God did. So God is the one who saved. God is the one who redeemed. It's not their work that saved them. We want to be careful here and make sure that we understand it according to the doctrine of salvation. In the scripture, it is by faith and it's by grace alone. So, other things, so uh, last week I was sharing some differences between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran, and one of it is that the, the fact that the God of the Quran is the author of temptation, deception, and evil. And we says from the scripture emphatically, this is not who God is. That's not how God presented his character and his nature to us. Other things that are disturbing also. If the God of the Bible indeed is the God of the Quran, then in the span of 600 years between the ascension of Christ and the writing of the New Testament and the coming of Muhammad and the revelation of the Quran, we begin to discover some major historical errors that are mentioned and listed in the Quran. That's disturbing simply because we are accusing God of being a God who fabricates facts or forgets facts or a God that is not relying on true sources, one or the other. Nevertheless, here is examples of what I mean. For instance, chapter 17 of the Quran, verse 1, it says this. We are told uh, in this chapter that the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, was taken to the farthest mosque. The farthest mosque is the Arabic word, basically, al-Masjid al-Aqsa, which is in reference to the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the mosque of the Dome of the Rock that is found in Jerusalem. The only problem is, historically, and according to Islamic own historical literature, that this mosque wasn't in existence at the time of Muhammad. In fact, it was built almost 60 years after the time of Muhammad. 
in the year 691 AD by no other than a caliph. His name is Abdul Malik. So we have a problem here. Why was it mentioned here that Muhammad went there? Now, you cannot say that, well, it's, it's really an allusion to the fact that it will be there. The scripture, I mean, the, the language in the Arabic is very clear that it's, it's speaking about something that existed. The commentators will talk about it this way. So uh, there is a theory here, of course, and uh, uh, many revisionists uh, uh, believe that uh, this was added later. Uh, basically, this terminology, uh, to clarify the location where this supposed player to, uh, prayer took place. And if that's the case, then there goes this doctrine of preservation of the Quran, because now human is tampering with the Scripture. And if it is God who said it, then for whatever reason, he really did not uh, really reveal a historical fact that was accurate at that time. So there was an act of deception here, uh, if you look at it this way. Another uh, problem Found in chapter 18 of the Quran, verses 83 to 98, it talks about Alexander the Great. And by the way, Alexander the Great, according to the Quran, is a prophet. Okay, so here's what it says, that uh, uh, Alexander the Great, uh, known also as the man with the two-horned one, basically uh, the helmet that he would wear has two horns in it, that's what the reference is. It says that somehow he managed to expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth and he reached a point where he discovered that the sun, when it sets, you know, the sunset, it actually sits literally in a lake of mud to cool it down overnight. That's what the Quran says. And that's what the commentators agreed that it says. And some of them even argue that this is what goes on when the sun sits and we do not see it. Are you telling me this is the science of the Quran, basically? Because I can assure you that's not the science that you will study about what happened when the sun sits. It has to do with the fact that the earth rotates around the sun. Okay, so there you go. That's uh, a reference to a, a scientific, actually, uh, dilemma. Then we have another Chapter, chapter 4, verse 157 of the Quran, and this one deals directly with Christianity, where it says clearly that the Jews thought that they killed Jesus the Messiah, but the Quran says they killed him not, nor crucified him, but he was made to look like him. I can tell you I can really do an entire series on this, talking about this um, problem in, the term, in terms of the Quran denying, actually, the crucifixion. I tell you this. Here are some, fa uh, some uh, things related to why Islam denies uh, the crucifixion of Christ. One of it is that no one, according to the doctrine of salvation in Islam, should carry the sins of another. Okay? Second, that it's a problem when you claim that God allowed his prophet, in this case Jesus, to be punished this way. Thirdly, it talks about the fact that God is powerful and he will not allow a prophet to be killed anyway. He will rescue them, okay? Fourthly, it also talks about the fact that this is a doctrinal error by the Christians when they make this claim that Jesus died for them on the cross and therefore 600 years after the ascension of Christ, the Quran came to correct that error. Wow, 600 years passed before God decided to correct that error. But let me ask you to think about this, if you, especially if you're a Muslim person listening to this. Doesn't the Quran in this passage, in chapter 4, verse 157, actually 
goes completely against what Muslims believe, that no one should carry the sins of another, because it says that someone else was placed in Jesus' place and was crucified. What was that someone else's error or sin that he deserved to be punished that way? If God is so powerful, why does he have to deceive people and have someone else be placed on a cross to deceive them to think that it was Jesus? Something to think about. I'm pretty sure we will do a series on this at some point in the future. So here is a problem, historically, by accounts of non-Christians also, and in fact, I recommend you to go and watch a movie called Risen, uh, you will see that this is a historical fact, that Jesus was crucified. Here's another problem with this passage. It says that the Jews claimed that they killed the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary. Well, here we have a problem. The Jews did not really ask the Romans to kill Jesus because they believed he's the Messiah. But actually, they believed he's not the Messiah. And that's another problem that we have here. So here is the proof. Luke thir- uh, tw- uh, 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him. Who was the they? The Jews of his days, the days of Christ, 2,000 years ago, when they put him on trial. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ as king. Notice, they said he's fabricating this title, therefore he deserved to die. They didn't believe he was the Christ. So I'm not so sure really where this Quranic passage uh, comes with this assurance that he was killed because they believed that he was the Christ. That goes against the whole thing. They should have accepted him as Christ then. Here's another thing. Um, It talks also about Mary in the Quran being a member of the Godhead. Chapter 5, verse 116, it says, And behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, the son of Mary, did you say to men, Worship me and my mother? And then Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than just a human, an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both basically to eat their daily food, meaning the Quran is talking here that they're just mere humans. They're not basically gods. But the problem is we don't really don't find where in the history of the church, the orthodoxy of the church, that Christians, early Christians, the time of Christ Christians, the first century Christians, the church fathers ever endorsed a worship of anybody else, not, not to say whether it was Mary or someone else. Nowhere that we find that Mary was included in the uh, Godhead, that she was a member of the triune God, the one triune God that we worship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the fact that this claim uh, truly goes against the orthodoxy of Christianity, why didn't the Quran, for instance, just attack the Trinity differently and says, you know, Christians believe in a one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not true. I mean, how, how difficult was that to share something like this? But what we read is something that is totally different than what is orthodox, actually, in terms of what Christians believe in. And second of all, of course, uh, if we read the biography of Muhammad known as Sirat Rasulullah, meaning the biography of the prophet by Ibn Ishaq uh, in his work, uh, you read about a group of Christians from a town south of the Arabian Peninsula, right at the tip, basically, of modern-day Yemen, known as Najran. 
And they came basically to debate and explain that Christians believe that Jesus is God, he is the Son of God, and that he is, according to the biography in page 271, the, the English translation of it by Alfred Gulliam, translation, uh, Gulam, uh, uh, Gilliam, you know, however you want to spell it, uh, but it's Alfred, uh, G-U-I, L as in Luma, L as in Luma, I, A as in Apple, M as in Mike, E. According to Alfred's translation, The Life of Muhammad by Oxford University Press, and page 271, you're going to read that these Christians from Najran claim that Jesus is the third person of the Trinity, which is the doctrine of Christianity. Is Jesus the third person of the Trinity? I mean, this is the last thing I heard. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Even Jesus himself in Matthew 28, 19, and go and go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father, first member, the Son, second member, the Holy Spirit, third member. I don't read about Mary in here, nor that Jesus was the third member of the Trinity. So even the doctrine itself wasn't reported correctly. I mean, it's one thing to deny a doctrine. It's another to report that doctrine erroneously and make a false accusations against people who actually do not believe in something that they're being accused of. Another historical error mentioned in the Quran. The Quran made the claim that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is no other than the sister of Aaron and Moses. Remember, her name is Miriam, actually, which is the Arabic way for saying Mary. So I'm not surprised then that the name Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses, was also confused by Miriam, the mother of Jesus. You read this in chapter 3 of the Quran, verses 35 and 36, this is where it says, Behold, the wife of Imran said, O my Lord, I do dedicate unto you what is in my womb. That's the mother of Mary, basically, when she discovered that she's having a child, and this is Mary, that she's pregnant with Mary. When she was delivered, she said, O oh my Lord, behold, I am delivered of a female child. I have named her Mary. And then in chapter 66 of the Quran, verse 12, we see, And Mary, the daughter of Imran, who guarded her chastity. Right? And then we read in chapter 19, verses 27, 28, They said, O oh Mary, truly an amazing thing that you have brought, O sister of Aaron. Here's what, what's going on. In chapter 19, we read the account of people who are accusing Mary of having committed adultery because she disappeared supposedly and came back with a child. And they're like, how did that happen? But it accuses, uh, I mean, it relates her here to Aaron, say, sister of Aaron. How can Mary be the sister of Aaron when Aaron's sister was mentioned in Exodus 15, 20? That was almost 1,300 years before the time of Christ. And... That's where we begin to deal with a historical error here. So that's one of the problems that you will come across from a historical standpoint when you are looking at the Quran and the character of the God of the Quran. Many of these historical errors lead us to believe that how can the God of the Bible be the same God who know better? that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not the sister of Aaron and Moses, somehow reveals to us that now she is the sister of Aaron and of Moses. So, obviously, we have a number of problems here that we ought to really consider dealing with. As I mentioned to you last week and this week, this is a deep topic. 
And once again, I'm approaching the end of my show for this week. And I promise you that I will continue to visit this topic uh, in the weeks to come. We will continue with this detailed critical analyses uh, between the character of the God of Islam and the character of the God of the Bible, simply because I want to make sure that people understand and realize that we are dealing here with a very deep issue that messes with the nature of God and his character. And we have to be very careful not to be hasty in making those kind of claims. And at the same time, we have to really to reason with our Muslim friends. We have to make these comparisons for them and show them the character and the nature of God in the scripture, have them themselves compare and see for themselves. And our job is to plan seeds, to, pl- to pray and to work with them, not to debate, not to argue. And uh, as always, if you uh, like to get in touch with me, please email me at Ministries plural, ministries, plural, Ministries at gmail.com. You can always visit our show also on soundcloud.com forward slash let us reason and listen to all of the previous episodes. Until we meet again, have yourself a blessed week. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.